Welcome to the Cycling in Alignment podcast, an examination of cycling as a practice and dialogue about the integration of sport and right relationship to your life. Hello there, listeners. After over two years of recording and 80 plus episodes, I am elated to announce that Enduro Bearings has agreed to become a supporter of the Cycling in Alignment podcast. This is a double win for you, the audience. You have the opportunity to demonstrate your support of the show by making a purchase on the website cycling.endurobearings.com and you get to save some dollars while you trick out your whip. Use the code Colby Podcast to receive a 35% discount on any of Enduro Bearings' excellent products. That's Colby Podcast, which is all lowercase and all one word. This includes the excellent XD15 ceramic bottom bracket, which is guaranteed for life. That means it may outlive you because, well, it's inanimate. Enduro also makes headsets, derailleur pulleys, as well as bearings for just about everything that rotates on a bicycle. So use your digits to make the keyboard mudras and head over to cycling.endurobearings.com and upgrade your favorite ride now. And remember, the proper number of bicycles is always N plus one. So think ahead. Thanks for listening. Hello there, space monkeys. Tonight I'm walking. It's an evening walk podcast. This is going to be a short one. It's going to be an intro to a series. That was me pulling my glove on. It's pretty chilly out in Colorado still, even though it's March of 2023. Winter is still here. It's a real thing for sure. This weekend was quite frigid. Also, it's been a while since I've been able to record. Had a few setbacks. Had a bit of a neck injury last week, which set me back quite a bit. I was in quite a bit of pain for a couple days, which was an interesting experience. I found myself walking through the world with almost a snarl on my face, and I could feel other people reflecting it back at me. And this wasn't because I was intentionally snarling at other people externally or inherently. It's because internally I was experiencing a good bit of discomfort. Just walking through the grocery store was painful. And I've been injured in a long time. So it was a good reminder for me to see the other side of the coin and understand that sometimes when people throw you a sideways look. It's not necessarily because they want to fight you or because they don't like the way you look or the color of your hair or skin or whatever. Sometimes it has to do with what they've got going on. This was a good reflection. But what I want to speak about... Oh, one more thing. I was also delayed because I caught a nasty stomach bug two days ago. Three days ago? Today's a Sunday. And that sent me back quite a bit. I don't know if it was food poisoning or a stomach bug. It's quite hard to tell. But uh, that flattened me for a good day or two. 
However, I managed to make a pretty quick rebound. And I'll say that a wide variety of probiotic and prebiotic foods can really help that when your system can handle them. Until that point, what works well for me is simply jasmine, organic jasmine rice. And when I'm ready for it, organic eggs, simple protein and some salt, a lot of salt, a lot of quinton, which is a saltwater supplement you can get from Quicksilver Scientific. Uh, highly recommended. And hydrogen water was a good one for me during that trial period as well. Anyway, managed to bounce back. Now I'm feeling good. And today I probably couldn't ride my bike, but I chose instead to undergo a deep cleaning of our garage. It's spring after all, and it was profoundly liberating to organize my space. Sometimes instead of going to ride your bike and do the external things, you got to sweep your own doorstep, even if it actually means sweeping your doorstep. Organizing your stuff. After five decades on the planet, you end up with a lot of things. If you're a good little consumer like I've been and you buy all the stuff. Anyway, tonight is really going to be a brief introduction to a series which might be Drumroll, the most important podcast series I've ever done. I say that with a slight sense of irony and also a slight twinge of seriousness. This podcast will talk about a topic that is a recurring theme in many, many of my bike fits. And I want to explore this topic for you guys and ladies in hopes that it might help you. I have a recurrent instance, pardon my sniffles, it's a little chilly out, where I have clients walk through my door and the experience is one where they seem to think that they have an individual affliction. They're having an experience on the bike that no one else has had. And this is obvious to me from the language they use. However, I'm here to assure you that many, many cyclists suffer from the same challenges. Dogs don't like me talking this late at night. They are grumpy doges, defending their territory vigorously. And what is this affliction you are wondering? Stop prevaricating about the bush pierce, get to the punchline. What I'm talking about is a sensation of crookedness on the bike or twistedness on the saddle. It can also express itself as one leg being dominant over the other, one leg being smoother than the other, one leg being more fluent than the other. This may or may not uh, incidentally show itself in the left-right power balance numbers. Frequently it doesn't. So in case you're wondering, left-right power balance can have some relevance. However, for it to be relevant, it really has to be measured from a true left-right. That is either uh, crank arm-based strain gauges that are... Well, I think I woke up a, I walked up a dead end. I've never been up this road. How is this possible? I live in Boulder. No, I have been to this road. I'm rambling. 
I'm at a farm where there's an apple orchard. I took my daughter here when she was really little. Okay, I'm turning around. Sorry for that. So, now I forgot my train of thought. I'll just rewind. What we have is, ah yes, power meters, thank you. Left and right. When we have a crank-based power meter, that is a power meter that's based in the crank spider, this gives you modeled left and right power. This is pretty much useless. What is useful, left and right, is when you have two separate strain gauges that are actually measuring on the left side and the right side. And that can be a pedal system where you have both left and right pedals, or it can be an arm system where you have strain gauges on the left and right arms. The reason that a crank-based meter with modeled left and right is useless is because it's not actually discerning whether you are pushing or pulling to make the force. So we can understand this through a simple thought experiment. But now I have to go past the angry dogs again. Sorry for the barking noise. So when you're pushing down with, for example, the right leg during the power phase of the stroke, we'll imagine at three o'clock, and then you're pushing down at the equivalent power phase on the left side, which would be nine o'clock if you were facing the crank from the non-drive side. So at the same point in the power phase for both legs, and you compared the measurements, and the power meter, which was modeled, said you were whatever, we'll say 60-40. So 60% left, 40% right, just as an example. It might be easy to assume that you're not pedaling hard enough on the right side because you see 60-40. So you might push harder on the right. However, these numbers can be confounded by the variable of pulling up on the backside. Now, for those of you who have listened to my podcast on how to pedal a bike, you will know that I do not recommend that you actively pull up during seated cycling in the backside of the stroke. However, many people still do it under the belief that it will make them more efficient or make their pedal stroke rounder, and this is baloney. So it still messes with our crank-based power meter though, because if you're pulling, if you're pushing down with, we'll say, an average of somewhat equal force on both power phases, left and right, that'd be from 12 to 6 on the right and from 6 to 12 on the left. But you're pulling up with the right hamstrings or so as at nine o'clock on the right side and you are not pulling up with the left, then you're gonna get an inflated power value on the left downstroke because the model power meter can't tell the difference. It doesn't know whether you're pushing or pulling. It just knows that during what it interprets as the left side power phase, there's more power being applied to the crank. See the problem? So you might actually be pushing down equally and pulling up more with one leg than the other. And then you might start pushing harder with one leg trying to compensate. So the model power meter can get you way off track. Okay, that's a common question I get, so I just wanted to address that. However, if you are using a true two-sided power meter, then you can actually trust those numbers, assuming that the power meter is correctly zero offset, or as the incorrect terminology is frequently referenced, calibrated.
and everything is in order and you have the correct crank length entered in your head unit, etc., then you can probably trust the numbers, more or less, for most modern power meters. I don't really rec recommend one-sided power meters in general. They are good, like a starter wife, you know, someone that you want to try out for a while, get to know her a bit, maybe have a kid or two, and then decide you're done after a period of time. After an intro is done, you sort of realize what being married is all about, and then you move on to the next one. Sorry, that's kind of a cruel paradigm, but it happens all the time. I don't recommend it. That's what a one-sided power meter is. It teaches you some valuable lessons. Probably the single most valuable lesson you can get from any power meter is the simple lesson of pacing, or really the more nuanced lesson of how RPE is quite different from actual output. That's what a power meter teaches you. And you can get that from a one-sided power meter, but you can also not call a one-sided power meter a true scientific instrument because any scientific instrument, and look at me defending science, any true scientific instrument is completely unbiased. That is, the user cannot influence the outcome of the numbers it generates if it's an instrument that generates numbers. For example, if I wanted to measure the diameter of a seat post, hi puppy, and I used a micrometer, and the diameter of that seat post is 27.2 millimeters, the micrometer, assuming I use it correctly, will tell me that it is 27.2. It doesn't matter if I have a 31.6 seat tube I'm trying to put it in, and I really want it to be 31.6, because that's what size my seat tube is, the micrometer will tell me the seat post is 27.2 millimeters, which is a very common seat post diameter in case you don't know. However, if I'm riding really hard with a one-sided power meter, that is, they're commonly available on the left side, whether you get a pedal or a string gauge model, and I really want my threshold to be a lot higher, I can influence the numbers by just pushing harder with the left leg because how our one-sided power meter works is it takes the power from one leg and doubles it. It'd be the equivalent of me putting you on a bathroom scale and having you put one foot on the scale and one foot on the ground and then standing on the scale and then doubling the number. See the problem? So you can put 90% of your weight on the left leg that's on the scale or 10% and influence the numbers. So it's not a scientific instrument because the user can actually change the output. So it's really important to understand that. Now, am I saying they're useless? No. Can they be useful? Yes. Can they be good teaching tools? Yes. Can they teach you the basics of power meter usage and pacing? Yes. Can they teach you, begin to teach you the difference or the relationship between perceived exertion and actual output? Absolutely. When you go set a PR with a left-sided power meter after you've been using it for a year, should you trust it? Mm. Depends on how big the PR is, to be honest. You gotta use some real interpretation of that data and some hard honesty. So, all that preamble aside, what I'm trying to get to is the point where we're back in the Fit Studio 
and the rider walks through the door and they tell me about their unique outcome or challenges they're having on the bike. And these challenges are that they are struggling because they've got a problem which boils down fundamentally to asymmetry. So the list that each rider can give me all boil down to the same denominator. The common denominator is a rotation of the pelvis around the axis of the seat tube. And there are subtle differences in how that can present, but fundamentally that's the basis of it. The nuances of symptoms or outcomes can be such as, uh, as quite a list. People can have chronic IT band pain on one side, chronic TFL pain on one side, chronic low back pain on one or both sides, chronic pain in the shoulder on one or more sides, chronic numbness in one or more hands, one or both hands, I should say, more, as if people have more than two hands. I've yet to meet a person with more than two hands. Although there's probably some out there. Uh, chronic knee pain on one side. Um, occasionally chronic uh, challenges in the feet on one side typically. So unilateral stuff is more common. However, it can manifest even in bilateral symptoms, meaning two-sided. And pain is the, the reason that I frequently have people walking through my door, but not necessarily. Sometimes it's just a, a fidgeting syndrome. Like people just feel chronically twisted to the point where they can't focus on their riding and they can't enjoy it. They can't achieve a flow state. So they get frustrated because maybe they're chasing this for months or years and they can never quite seem to figure out what's going on. And they get into what Steve Hogwarts referred to as bike fit hell. where you are sort of chasing this internal demon and self-diagnosis for bike fit can be quite challenging because you can't see your own ass on a bike. That's why I have a job. Hashtag I film butts for a living. So when you film a rider's pelvis, you can see what's happening and you can show them what's happening on your iPad. And they go, oh, wow, I had no idea that I was moving around like that. Uh, we don't have many sensors under our ischial tuberosities, actually. Um, and we've also got 15 mils of padding in our chamois. And most of us have padding on our saddles too. So it becomes quite challenging to figure out what's happening down there. Not to mention the Western bias against talking about pelvic floors and genitalia. I mean, that's the work of the devil right there. You want to stay away from that whole region below the belly button. That stuff's scary. All it's going to do is get you pregnant or get you in trouble. So don't talk about any of those penises or vaginas. Those are terrifying. Anyway, so um, just for the record, none of those words are taboo or off limits in my fist studio. I talk very directly with my clients. It's the only way to go. You got to be open and communicate. Otherwise, how are we going to get anything done? It's just body parts, people. We've all seen them and we've all got them. Moving on. So when we have these symptoms or presentations from a client, uh, then it becomes the task of the fitter, myself, to try to figure out how to, air quotes, fix it, which is a precarious position to be in because it assumes that I have the expertise and knowledge to fix anything which is an assumption. It's a big assumption. But I do my best to help people. 
I try not to fix things. I try to help people, and specifically, I try to help people help themselves. Because I'm far, far more interested in teaching someone how to fish rather than serving them a trout. Although trout is delicious. More barking dogs. So, when I'm teaching someone how to fish, I will first educate them about what's happening. And then I will offer solutions or potential exercises that can help them improve function. Now, here's the part that I want to unpack in the future episodes is the precise relationship. Wow, somebody's lighting up. Got some weed going on here somewhere. 9.30 at night, Sunday night. Somebody's having a party. Good for them. When we have this type of situation happening, there can be two etiologies, two roots. One can be the mechanical setup of the bike. The other can be the movement patterns of the rider. And usually there's a contribution from both. Although sometimes it's exclusively one or the other. However, I can't recall a single case. Well, I should correct that sentence because I'm about to correct it. I can't recall a single case where it was exclusively only the mechanical setup of the bike. I don't, I can't think of one at the moment. However, I have seen cases where people come into me for a bike fit and I make no changes to their bike, zero. And in my opinion, the entire responsibility of their asymmetry lies in their function. So we spend the entire fit session talking about their body and their off-the-bike movement practice and their on-the-bike movement cues that can help restore function and symmetry to their system. That is to say their cleats are set up correctly, their saddle set up correctly, their saddle bar drop is fine, their reach is fine. You know, a lot of people come to a bike fit and they have these types of problems, knee pain or um, a feeling of asymmetry around the saddle. I feel like a twisted pelvis or um, an anteriorly rotated anomenate to be slightly anatomical, which basically means that it feels like one side of your pelvis is tipped forward or the other side might be tipped back relative to the one that's tipped forward. And sometimes these clients will come to me and assume that I'm going to lower or raise their saddle and maybe move their cleats and then they'll feel symmetrical and can go on their way and ride, about, ride their bike. And I don't believe that has ever happened. It's just not that simple. Also, we have to understand, this is critical. This is the reason why I think this series is gonna be important. We have to understand that cycling breeds asymmetries. Cycling makes people asymmetrical by design, by not by design. It, no one designed a bike to do that. That's not the right term. Nor is it by definition. Cycling, there's nothing in the definition of cycling that causes asymmetry. What am I trying to say? Bear with me while I think out loud. What I'm trying to say is cycling inherently, because of its nature, causes asymmetry in humans. Why? It's pretty simple. To explain this, I'll briefly talk about strength training. 
because it's a parallel analogy. So many defensive dogs this evening. Don't like me talking. Sorry, I'm upset. Oh my goodness. This one's very angry. So, oh, he's white and fluffy. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Hi, fluffy dog. Gotta try to be nice. He's having none of it. So, when we train in the gym, we train strength. We can think of two modalities. One would be using machines. The other would be using free weights. And the problem with using machines is they upregulate the recruitment of phasic muscles and they downregulate recruitment of tonic muscles. What the hell am I talking about? I will explain. Also, of course, as you might predict, free weights train tonic and phasic muscles in parallel. At least more so. A lot more so than machine training. So when I say machine training, I'm talking about any of your typical Nautilus-type devices. Uh, we're talking about leg presses, leg extensions, leg curls, calf presses, Smith machines. That thing is the ultimate device of evil, in my opinion. When I'm talking about phasic muscles, I'm talking about prime movers. I'm talking about the muscles that are the most external on the body, the ones we can see, the Instagram muscles, like rectus abdominis, your six-pack muscle, or your nine-pack if you're Batman. He's got an extra ab. Your quads, your glutes, your hamstrings, your biceps, your triceps, all the muscles that people who are desperately attached to ego and really want to show you how big and strong they are, go to the gym to make big. To be judgy for a second. Not all the people, but many. We'll say many. Language of love. And so... When we're comparing phasic muscles or having an understanding of phasic muscles, we understand that they are prime movers. So they do the work. If you're going to be Superman and push a car off of a small child, you use the prime movers. You use, pri use prime movers to sprint or to push large amounts of weight. Tonic muscles, or these could also be called postural muscles or stabilizing muscles, are primarily slow twitch in nature. They are usually smaller in volume. They are usually closer to the center of the body. That is the center of the skeleton. They're more centrally located. And they activate in order to guide and support the phasic muscles. So here's the problem with machines. They don't require stabilization. They don't require tonic muscle activation. And that's why you can go on a leg sled and put way more plates on than you can in a back squat. Most athletes can. And this is the difference between machine strength and real world strength. It's the difference between numbers on a paper and actual farm strong or real world strength. They're two different things. And so a lot of people can put tons of plates on a sled and push them up and down and their lower back's curling and their butt's coming off the, the back of the, the chair and, and you know they're slamming weight left, right, and center and their knees are going all over the place. But it doesn't matter because all they have to do is push on the plate. And if they're pushing harder with one leg or the other, it doesn't matter. And if they're pushing 
harder on the medial aspect of the foot that is towards the ball of the foot or on the lateral aspect or maybe a mixture of one on each foot, it doesn't matter because the plate runs on these giant tubes of steel and it's got these frictionless bearings and the weight still moves. So you can have horrible technique. Is this ringing any bells for those of you who listen to my podcast? There's a similar contraption in cycling. It's called an indoor trainer. It does the same thing. It murders technique. Or I should say a little more elegantly, it camouflages poor technique very well, which then fosters poor technique. So, when we train in the gym and we're training our phasic muscles using machines, what we're doing is we're making the phasic muscles stronger and we're making the tonic muscles relatively weaker. Maybe they get some work, but we have a heavy emphasis on the phasic muscle group. And so the delta between these two systems of muscles gets bigger. And this is highly problematic. It's the equivalent of buying a 1972 Toyota Corolla. I don't know. I'm not a car guy. A really crappy old car, okay? That didn't have a big engine. That's the thing I'm going for. And then we're going to put a muscle car engine in it, right? We're going to put a Mustang engine in it that's got 500 horsepower or whatever. Again, not a car guy. Sorry for those of you who are rolling your eyes at me right now. But you get the point. And what's going to happen? When we put this huge engine in this old car with skinny little lawnmower tires and you floor it, the thing's going to rip off the line. And then the second you go to turn or do anything that requires any precision, the car's going to fall apart or go off the road. Because you upgraded the engine, but you did not upgrade the suspension. The shocks aren't capable of handling an engine with that much power. They weren't designed to handle a car going that fast because it's a 1972 Corolla, right? The suspension arms aren't strong enough. The shocks aren't strong enough. The tires aren't grippy enough. None of that system works relative to the engine. So any good engineer will tell you, and I know most of you are engineers because you're cyclists. It's just the way it works. Any good engineer will tell you that everything works as a system. When it works well, then the whole system performs and then the car can do its job. But, you know, it's the weakest link will always break in the chain. So if we put this giant engine in this Corolla and then go ripping up and down a twisty road, it's just a matter of time before you go flying off a cliff. This is the same problem with building too much strength physically in the gym using machines and not using free weights. So this is why when I write a strength program, I never ever recommend that people use machines for strength, ever. In case my opinion isn't clear, I never recommend machines. It's sacrilegious to me. Uh, And I can tell you from personal experience how screwed up they can make you. I went through it. And it's taken me years to build proper function where I can actually begin to lift somewhat kind of real weight with actual form and integral strength. Or in the words of Tom Myers, who created the system of anatomy trains, tensegrity, which is tension and integrity combined. That is, when a system has tensegrity, it's got a global structure and stability to it. 
So, having explained all that, now we can begin to understand the problem with cycling. Cycling is exercising on a machine. Bicycles are machines. So we have the same problem on the bike that we do when we go use the leg press in the gym. It's the same thing. We're working our muscles on a machine. It's just that it happens in slow motion on a bike. The gap, the delta between the phasic and tonic muscle systems doesn't grow as quickly because we're not doing as much work on the bike. Yes, we're pushing on the pedals, but we have no eccentric load cycling, zero. But the same problem applies. That is, think about it this way. You use your prime movers to pedal the bike, right? Your quads, hopefully your glutes to some degree, your hamstrings and your calves. These are all prime movers. What is required to guide and stabilize these prime movers? Muscles like tibialis anterior. This is the little muscle on the outside of your shin that runs down and dorsiflexes your foot. So if you point your toe up towards the sky or towards your nose and you hold it for about 30 seconds, you're gonna to start to feel tibialis anterior fire. Your external hip rotators, like glute med. Your internal hip rotators. These are all examples of postural muscles. That is tonic muscles, stabilizing muscles that are not really used during cycling. They're required during cycling, especially during maximal efforts to guide the phasic muscles. And well, I should say they're used during cycling, but they're not worked in a way that trains them sufficiently to keep up with the development of the phasic muscles. That would probably be the best way I can say it right now. And so, over time, what happens when we ride our bikes is the delta between these muscle groups gets larger and larger. And it usually happens asymmetrically. And when that happens, we begin to rotate. So as Mike Salemi said on my podcast, I think he said it on my podcast, maybe he said it on one of his, maybe I quoted him on mine, you are most likely to get injured in the plane in which you do not move. So if we take Mike's words and we interpret them in this context, what we're saying is we're moving in the sagittal plane all the time. The sagittal plane is the, the plane in which your legs move when you are walking like I am now. And when we rotate, we're moving in the transverse plane. So if I twist my hips to the right or to the left, that's rotation in the transverse plane. And I don't tend to do that during cycling. You are most likely to get injured in the plane in which you do not move. So it's the tiny movements in the rotational plane that screw us up. And the reason we have them is because we can't control them. Because our tonic muscles that help guide us in the sagittal plane and control that movement aren't there. So we start to twist. And when we twist, one way or another, then we get the knee pain or the tensor fascia lata pain or the IT band pain or the low back pain, or the problems with the L5, S1, or L4, L5. So, or SI joint problems, right? Or the list goes on. The outcomes are all very individual, but the fundamental problem is the same. And so here's to rewind back to the beginning of the podcast a bit. People walk through my door and they think, I, I have this weird thing that I've never heard of before. 
I feel really twisted on the bike. And I'm saying, okay, tell me. And they describe how they're twisted. And then I film them. And then I get to give them statistics. So I'm going to give them to you on the pod now so you have them. Probably 80 or 85% of my riders who walk through the door have significant hip drop. This is my overarching term to describe this presentation. And I call it hip drop because in the posterior view, when I'm standing at eye level looking at their pelvis while they're riding, usually one hip is dropping down and the other one is sometimes also going up or sometimes staying where it is. And then one hip is dropping down at the bottom of each pedal stroke. So think about it as if you looked at the iliac crest, which is the top of your hip bone, that iliac crest would drop as the foot drops to the bottom of the stroke. They would drop concurrently. So it's like the hip is following the foot. So that's why I call it hip drop. But it's also really can be a rotation where the hip moves forward as the foot comes forward to three o'clock. So I'm thinking about the right leg in this instance. When the right leg goes from 12 to three, the right hip goes from 12 to three. And then as the hip, the foot goes from three to six, the hip drops down and follows it. So it's as though the hip on the right side in this example is hypermobile and it's following the foot. And this can put a lot of strain on the left side of the lower back. Curiously, you can get saddle sores on either side from this condition. Now, 80, 85% of my riders have visible hip drop. And of all my hip droppers, of, of 100% of those hip droppers, probably 85 or 90% of them are righties. Why? There are probably lots of reasons. Probably one of the biggest ones is most people are eating a diet that is not really doing well for their body and it challenges their liver and their liver is swollen and inflamed and the psoas passes very close to the liver. And the psoas also has attachments to the diaphragm and sometimes directly to the liver. That is bands of fascia that go directly from the organ to the muscle. So if your liver, which is on the right side of your abdomen, is super tight, and it's causing additional tonicity in your psoas, then you can see how, uh, don't, let's remember, don't forget, the psoas is a hip flexor. What does it do? It brings the right femur closer to the, the thorax on the right side. So it closes the right hip, flexes the hip. So if your psoas is tighter on the right than the left, it's gonna keep your right hip locked down. So at the bottom of the stroke, when you're trying to extend your leg, if that psoas is hypertonic, it's going to pull the right side of your pelvis forward and down because the hip's not going to want to be extended. This is just one possible explanation. And it's only one layer of possible explanations because the psoas is a highly emotional muscle that responds deeply to trauma and fear. So if you have a lot of trauma or fear in your life, which well, a lot of us had during the last three years, because COVID was a fear manufacturing machine, then there's a possible correlation. And if you think I'm coming from Mars on this, that's cool. Just consider this. You may or may not be aware of the fact that 
for every strong emotion a human has, there is a physical correlation. I'm going to say that again because it may seem trite, but it may also seem like I'm, again, talking Martian. Depending on your perspective, for every strong emotion a human has, there is an emotional correlation. Simple thought experiment to demonstrate this. Imagine that you're walking on the street, someone walks up behind you, pulls out a pistol, fires it in the air six feet from the back of your head. Shoots a gun without warning. What are you going to do? First, you're going to probably shit your pants. To be blunt, well, that's probably what I would do. You're going to crouch, collapse your chest, your pupils are going to dilate, your heart rate's going to spike, your breathing rate's going to spike, your adrenaline's going to spike, your cortisol's going to spike, right? Probably most of the muscles in your body are going to tense for a few seconds at a minimum, and several of them will stay tense for probably a few hours. Your ears are going to ring, right? You see my point. So we've got this long list of physical implications to this emotional event. It was a physical event, but you had an emotional response. What was the emotional response? Shock, fear, surprise, maybe horror, maybe... Yeah, probably fear is the biggest one, right? Someone shoots a gun, you're afraid. You think they're going to shoot you or shoot someone else. So that fear has a physical correlation. Now, this seems like a an obvious example. Maybe it seems like a, a trite example or a silly example. But every time you have a strong emotion, there's a physical correlation. And these physical correlations manifest in the body and they can become, we'll say in the, from the lens of Chinese medicine, they can become trapped in the body, specifically trapped in the organs. And the liver is an organ. So, that might seem a little woo or whatever, just calling it like I see it. But even if we push all that emotional stuff aside, because feelings are meant to be felt, not talked about, and we consider the hypertonicity of the psoas in most people in our society on the whole, especially people who sit a lot. So even just being in hip flexion all the time, or we'll say during many of our waking hours. So if you're sitting at a desk for a good portion of your day, maybe you've got a standing desk. Most people don't. Some people do. And then you go get on your bike and you're listening to Kelly Starrett talk about how sitting is the new smoking. And you're riding your bike thinking, well, I'm way ahead of you, pal. I have bad news for you because cycling is just more sitting. <laughs> That's what cycling is. It's sitting. You're sitting on a saddle. You're in, what defines sitting is hip flexion. That is to say, you're not standing upright with a straight line that can go between your shoulder, the center of your torso, your hip, and your knee. That is a neutral angle to the hip. Hip extension would be when your hip bones are forward of your shoulder or your knee or both depending on which reference point you want to use. That would be hip extension. Hip flexion is when your hip is behind those points. So you can see that when we're in a chair, we're in hip flexion. And when we're on a bike, we're in hip flexion. 
both hips are in flexion all the time. They're just one, they're alternating, we're lunging effectively. So we get one hip in more flexion than the other periodically. Um, we, we oscillate, we'll say it between the two. We're always in flexion. And when you're in hip flexion, the psoas is in a shortened position. And when the muscle's in a shortened position and working actively, it becomes hypertonic, which means it's never completely relaxed. So the ideal function, functional state for a muscle is a muscle that can go to nearly zero activity or maybe hypothetical zero, complete relaxation. Imagine yourself being in a salt bath or in Savasana after a nice yoga class or just on the verge of waking up from a really nice long nap on a lazy Sunday afternoon. Something I did not do today. Imagine you waking up from this nap and you're barely moving, you're barely conscious and you can't really move yet. You're still sort of doped up from sleep, sleep chemicals, happy sleep chemicals. And you're just can you just feel super peaceful. There's no stress, nowhere to be, nothing to do. That's zero or close to zero muscle tension. And then, of course, the opposite would be the final rep of a really heavy set of weightlifting. Or when you're Superman and you're pushing that car off that kid. And you are flexing every single fiber of the muscle. That would be close to 100% or maybe 100% contraction rate. Hypertonicity means... The muscles never can go to zero, nor can it go to 100. It's always at about 27. And the problem with the hypertonic muscle is that it's neither strong nor is it fresh. It's always tired because it's always on. A good example of muscles that can get hypertonic are the muscles in, around your neck, especially if you're stressed. The traps, the levator scapula. We start to hike those shoulders up and the traps sort of flare out, almost like the hood of a cobra. These are muscles that commonly become hypertonic. This is a stress response, typically. It can also be a response from chronic work conditions, like typing on a computer, especially set up at a desk with poor ergonomics. So a hypertonic muscle is simultaneously fatigued and weak. It's a, it's a rough place to be in. And we definitely want to avoid this. We want muscles to be under our conscious control and we want them to be such that we can flex them to 100% and also we can let them relax, completely unplug. That's the ultimate end goal. So, this is actually longer than I thought it was going to be, but that's all good. That's my intro on the concept of rotation around the pelvis and some of the basic foundational principles of the discussion. What I want to unpack in future episodes, the next one, and there'll, there'll be at least one more, but maybe two more, depends on how I go, will be specifics on how to deal with this problem from what I've learned and the things, the factors that we have to consider to help an athlete recover from this. I'll unpack aspects of bike setup that I commonly see that contribute to it. And that's kind of the boring part, to be honest. And that may be the part that you're most interested in. But understand, as I mentioned earlier, that it's rarely only the bike. In fact, I don't think it's ever only the bike. It's usually some of each. 
That is some of the bike setup and some of the inherent function of the rider. But most of the time, it is mostly on the rider because we get on bikes and we ride them and we think that cycling is the most amazing sport in the world. And I still pretty much think it is. But I also recognize that it has very, very serious implications for our function as humans. And if we want to have longevity in the sport and balance in our lives, we are required to understand what the sport does to our bodies and to work to offset it. Otherwise, it just goes downhill. For not everyone, but for most people. I would say the majority of people who ride bikes end up with these types of issues, especially if you ride a lot. So, I will unpack exercises and movements on how I think we can work to stabilize. And I'll give you a hint. Um, it doesn't involve a lot of wedging or footbeds. It involves a lot of strengthening of the foot and ankle and strengthening and stabilizing of the, the hips because this is these are the problems. These are the problem areas. It also involves some mobilization of certain areas because typically when we have asymmetries, of course, one side is tight and the other is too mobile. So we do some of both, in my opinion. That's usually what is required. That's what I got for now. Thanks for listening. I hope you find this helpful. Wow, this person left their window open. And it's like 24 degrees out. I will record the next episode at my earliest convenience. I'm not sure when that's going to be, but I'll try to not let everyone hang on the incredible cliffhanger that I've left you. I know it's just as exciting as the Mandalorian. And you'll be waiting on the edge of your seat for the next episode. Thanks for listening as always. If you feel you are afflicted from some of these challenges, hit me on the gram. Let me know. If you're one of my clients and you've been afflicted with these challenges, let it be known that I'm glad you're listening and I'm always doing my best to try to give you the most updated techniques and information I have on this topic. And this podcast is part of that effort. So maybe you'll have worked with me in person and heard some of these ideas and maybe some of them will be new. Hopefully in any case, at least it'll be good review for you. But I suspect there'll be some new material for just about everybody because I'm always adding new things and trying my hardest to refine the program. That's what's up. Take care, everyone. Ride fast, ride consciously. And thanks for listening. Epilogue. I want to share a few brief thoughts about the inception of cycling and alignment. The purpose of this podcast is for me to get three and a half decades of hard-fought lessons out of my skull. Some of them through my own research and reading. Some of them I've been taught through mentors and colleagues, other riders, other racers. A lot of it, a massive amount of it was simply trial and error through my own stubborn methods. And that has amassed a certain amount of experience and knowledge, understanding. And while I think I'm reasonably smart and I know quite a bit of stuff, I want to make it clear that the opinions that I share on this podcast are belief systems built on what I've experienced to this point. And that some of those opinions are pretty strong, but they are also loosely held. 
That is to say that if I learn more about a topic and have a greater level of clarity or understanding, then my old belief systems will be abandoned and I will now operate under that newfound knowledge. So I'm not here to tell people all the things that I know. I'm here to explain what I've learned to this point. And there's a big difference. Also, that is the intent when I discuss things on the pod with guests is to learn from them and have a discourse. Because if we can't have a discourse as adults, then we've lost one of the basic tenets of modern society. Even if we disagree, we ought to be able to, in most cases, shake hands and walk away. Because after all, this is sport we're talking about. And while sport is training for life, it's nothing to get too upset over. The purpose of the podcast is to help me help other people and specifically to help them actualize their highest potential by illuminating a path that enables alignment with their truth, their intent, and their coherence. That's really the end goal. So I'm grateful for your listening. My intent is also not to be clear, to gain an audience or become popular or gain social status in any way. I don't care about that stuff. That said, if you feel an episode that you have heard will help someone you know, please share it with them. That helps us reach the end goal, which is to help more people. Thank you for listening. I'm grateful for your time and attention. Blessings.